0: Philippians chapter 1, if you're following where I am. Philippians chapter 1, Paul's warm and personal letter to the Prophet Philippi. I'm reading the verse 12. Philippians 1 verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Good stuff, eh? Good stuff. But Paul is a prisoner in Rome. Has anyone here been a prisoner? Yeah, you have first-hand experience of that. Not a pleasant experience. It's not just a superficial thing. When you're a prisoner, you are at the beck and call of other people. Your future is in doubt. You are constrained in every way. And certainly in those days, it was not a pleasant experience. He has a soldier to guard him. We popularly think that the soldier is chained to him. A likely possibility. And so he's got an endless succession of soldiers being chained to him for their period of duty. And he's on trial for his life. And in this passage we have clearly Paul's emotional state coming through. He doesn't know whether he's going to live this experience. Or whether he's going to die. So what possible reason can he have for being so joyful? This letter is full of joy. Chapter 1 verse 4. Um In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the gospel. Verse 26. So that through my being with you again, your joy... In Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. And so he goes on. What possible reasons could Paul have for being joyful when he's in prison in danger of losing his life? The future is completely obscure. I want to just point out to you two things that I believe help Paul manage this time of trial. Do you have things you're not looking forward to in the future? Do you have problems? We often as Christians pretend life can go on okay. We sang a song, which is absolutely true. We stand on all the promises of the word of God. Absolutely true. But the word of God also, apart from promises, gives us warnings, doesn't it? Warnings. We don't often stand on the warnings. We stand on the promises. They sound good. So the first thing I want to say this morning is it all to do with the perspective you have of life. Perspective. How we see things greatly affects how we live in the world. Consider this. A young couple looking at a tumble-down cottage that they've just put their deposit down on and got their mortgage for. They don't see a rundown cottage. What they see is this freshened-up place that they're going to spend all their days and nights and weekends renewing. They don't see what is, they see what will be. And they're prepared to put in a lot of work to do it. Consider the young athlete who wants to win an Olympic medal. They will go without all sorts of stuff for 4 years, 8 years, 12 years, for 10 seconds of fame to stand on a podium. They are prepared to put up with hardship in order to win a prize that is passing. Consider Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer to the Hebrews says it was because Jesus could see through what he was about to experience, two greater things, that he was able to do it. Your perspective really matters. And there are two things at least that will help in this. One is the past words that God has said the past words that God has said, the general words that God's given to all people. Here's one of them. John 16, verse 33. Jesus warned us that we'd have trouble, didn't he? He says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now this is not meant to be a downer this morning, warning you of trouble. But if you think for any reason that being a Christian will absolve you from problems, Every time you hit one, it's in danger of knocking you over. But if you know it's coming, you then have that idea of how to deal with it. Jesus warned us plainly. In the world, you will have trouble. Not some of you, not might have, but will do, because it's a clash of cultures. You have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. When they come together, there's bound to be explosion. There's bound to be abrasions, confrontations. It is inevitable. We live in a broken world. In John 15, he went on to say, if the world hates you, bear in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way way because of my name. So Jesus gave us plain and straightforward warning that life is not going to be easy. And if we hold on to that, understand that, then we won't collapse or react wrongly the first time it happens. And Jesus also told us that our calling is to be his witnesses in the world. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what he told to his disciples and he told them to tell everybody else so it's to everybody else as well, isn't it? Make disciples of all people, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So we have to receive that as well. But he also has specific words for Paul. That comes generally. All Christians are going to have trouble in the world. If you haven't got trouble, don't go looking for it. Rejoice and be glad. I don't want trouble, but Jesus warned me I would have trouble because we live in a world that is under the, well, the, the evil one. But he also had specific words for Paul. He told Paul that he would testify to Jew and Gentile, not least in Rome. So Paul being in Rome, as most people think at this time, he's not going to be thinking, well, I should be in Galatia, I should be in Ephesus, I should be in Spain, I should be someone else. No, God told him. He would have to be in Rome. Acts 9, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, emperors, and before the people of Israel. Acts 23, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So where he is is not a surprise to Paul because he was warned He would come here and he would testify before the emperor. How does an ordinary citizen get to see the emperor? Very unlikely, unless you're on trial for your life and you've appealed to Caesar. Then you see him. And that's the way God has organized it around him. But he also told him he would suffer. Acts 9. I will show him, he says to Ananias, how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias passed that on to Paul. And Paul knew that taking the word of God before the Gentiles and their kings, before the Israelites, would cause suffering in his life. So he is not surprised by where he is and what's happening to him. He's not shocked. He's not struggling. Oh, woe is me. He knows this is part and parcel of the calling of God upon his life. So this meant that when persecuted and hounded and arrested and imprisoned, Paul was not shocked or dismayed. It doesn't make life easy, but it makes it possible. We live in a society which suggests that life can be trouble free. That if you've got enough insurance, that nothing bad will happen to you, and if you if it does, then someone will pay for it for you. If something bad happens, often people go, Where is the person who's at fault? And often it's one of those things. They should make the problems go away. But life is not guaranteed to be trouble-free and certainly not the Christian life. The Stella Awards are named after 81-year-old Stella Liebeck, who spilled coffee on herself and successfully sued McDonald's. That case inspired the Stella Awards for the most frivolous successful lawsuits in the United States. Here's one. Kathleen Robertson was awarded $780,000 by a jury of her peers after breaking her ankle, tripping over a toddler who was running inside the furniture store. The owners of the store were understandably surprised by the verdict, considering that the misbehaving little toddler was Miss Robertson's son. Nineteen-year-old Carl Truman won $74,000 and medical expenses when his neighbor ran over his hand with a Honda Accord. Mr. Truman apparently didn't notice there was someone at the wheel of the car when he was trying to steal his neighbor's hubcaps. Terence Dixon was leaving a house he had just finished robbing by way of the garage He was not able to get the garage door to go up since the automatic door opener was malfunctioning and he couldn't re-enter the house because the door connecting the house and garage had locked. The family was on vacation and Mr. Dixon found himself locked in the garage for eight days. He subsisted on a diet of Pepsi he found and a large bag of dried dog food. As the burglar, he sued the homeowner's insurance claiming the situation caused him undue mental anguish The jury agreed and gave him $500,000. Jerry Williams was awarded $14,500 and medical expenses after being bitten on the buttocks by his next door neighbor's beagle. The beagle was on a chain in its owner's fenced yard. The award was less than than he sought because the jury felt the dog might have been just a little provoked at the time by Mr. Williams who was shooting at it with a pellet gun. And you could go on. It's nonsensical. We live in a world that suggests life can be trouble-free. Or if something happens to you, it's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. This is the real world. It's crazy, isn't it? And if for any reason we think Christian life is like that, the the moment problems start, we harangue God and say, you didn't tell me this would be like this. God can say, yes, I did, actually. And we won't rail at God for bad things that happen in our lives. But it's not only the past words that God's given us, warning us that life is not going to be easy, but that God is with us. He also had the future confidence. Paul puts it like this, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. He'll write elsewhere, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can see what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. If we know what God has said, warning us about what it will be like in this life, and we also understand fully what God has prepared for those who love him, then we are able, more ably, to live in the present conditions with equanimity, we'll be able to live in the good of God's loving intention. So, Paul writes elsewhere For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including soldiers chained to your wrists and ankles, will be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want you to remember as you go into this week that everything that God has said in the past, we should not ignore the difficult passages. So when trouble has come, and I speak to myself as much as to you, my friends, when trouble has come, I have to say, you warned me of this, Lord. So how then do I seek you in the midst of it rather than just running away from it? And what God has promised for the future should help our perspective with dealing with what we are presently going through. So perspective, remember what God has said and what God has planned and that can help us now. God is with us in everything. But here's the second one. If the first one is perspective, the second one is priority. And you'll have picked that up already as we go through this little letter to the Philippians. For Paul, the preeminence is always, the priority is always Jesus Christ. Everything revolves around him. When John has his glimpse into heaven, he sees the lamb looking as it had been slain, sitting on the throne around which are the elders and the living creatures and the thousands upon thousands and countless multitudes around the throne circle, just like they were in the desert, when the people were moving from Egypt to Israel. They were going through the desert. And every time they camped, for 40 years, every time they camped, the tabernacle was slap bang in the middle. And they camped round facing inwards. So the first thing they saw, as they opened their tent doors in the morning, and looked over the tent in front of them, was the tabernacle and the glory. Everything focused on God. And for Paul it's the same thing. Everything focused focuses on Jesus. And he says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to him? He's been arrested, falsely accused of what he's not done, taken in chains, he's lost his liberty for two years already, and then had to come on this long-winded Mediterranean cruise for Rome in the midst of a shipwreck. What's happened to me has really served to give me a pain in the neck, has really served to advance the gospel. See where Paul's heart is? He is the one suffering, but he's saying, I don't care, because this is really advancing the gospel. I'm here now in a capital city, speaking to people I wouldn't otherwise speak to, with the prospect even of testifying that there is really one Lord, to Caesar himself. This is Paul's abiding concern, the advance of the gospel. It's happening among people who've never heard. These Roman soldiers, the chances are they've never yet heard the gospel. These Roman soldiers, they've got busy lives to lead. They're not interested in the faith of the folk around them, generally speaking. And and centurions and whatnot come out quite well in the gospels. But these soldiers probably haven't heard. But Paul, of course, has them now chained to him. They're not only he's a prisoner, they're his prisoner, aren't they? Because he's going to talk to them. What else are they going to discuss? And he has a few hours, day by day, with each one of these guys. And can talk. These are ordinary men who have the ordinary things of life. The worries, the fears, the anxieties. Life doesn't work for them too. And they're chained next to a guy who has the answer. And not a slick answer, believe this and all your problems will go away. Rattle, rattle. But believe this and your life will be transformed. Life is more than this. And he has these people. So he has the opportunity of telling people about Christ. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard. So even those who are not physically, literally chained to Paul are hearing from their colleagues who are saying, you, you don't need duty with that bloke, bloke called Paul. Cool, he didn't have to give you a lot of talk. And they're telling one another about these things and sharing together. Could it be true? Is it true? The Gospels and the book of Acts tell us that Roman centurions were warmed to the Jews, the, the, the Jewish faith as a starter. And many came to faith in Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't more now? These palace guards saw the consistent life of Paul and heard the saving words of the gospel. Those two things going together. And one by one, they're exposed to it. And for Paul, the important thing was not to get rid of his chains, but was to speak for Christ, not to bemoan his situation. And we may imagine how powerful his witness would be because these guys were used to sold, to, to, save it, to guarding prisoners who would rant and rail and make life an absolute misery but not Paul. His life was completely different. It's also being spread among the followers of Jesus. Verse 14 Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Clearly they've been timid about expressing their faith in Jesus and declaring him to be the one true Lord in the heart of the empire, that follows the emperor who says, Caesar is Lord. Well, it's understandable if they were a bit timid about saying Jesus is Lord at the risk of losing their lives in some horrific way. But because of Paul's imprisonment and because of the way he's handling it, it actually has encouraged them to preach the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. He's been a stimulus to them. Do you read the accounts of Christians who are persecuted for their faith currently? They are inspiring, aren't they? Have you read accounts of Christians in the past whose lives were martyrdom or difficulty? They inspire you, don't they? They encourage us. That's the effect Paul is having on followers of Jesus. But not all followers of Jesus loved Paul. In verse 15 he said, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill." So obviously not everyone loved Paul, and some preach the gospel in order, can you believe it, to make life more difficult for Paul to stir up a hornet's nest, so he'll get the more difficulty. I don't quite know how that works out. We're not explained. It's not particularly that they are Judaizers suggesting that this is not the right way because Paul in verse 18, rejoices that Christ is preached. Well, if they were preaching some other gospel, then he would have had strong words for them, like Galatians, but he's not having that. He says Christ is being preached. So clearly they're preaching the gospel, but doing so out of malicious intent, not love for God and for Paul. I don't know quite how that works, but nonetheless, Paul doesn't moan about it. He says, I don't mind, because one way or the other, Christ is being preached. I don't care how it happens. So maybe when Christian things are being discussed on radio, television, and it's being mocked and so forth, maybe we shouldn't be too quick to criticize because it's actually, maybe, it's actually exposing some truth of the gospel before people who otherwise wouldn't hear it. Maybe. So difficulties need not be terminal. It's true. If it's true that God will never leave us nor forsake us, and he is in the midst of every dark night we have. And God, we know, can turn all things to his advantage. Someone said this, It will be found, doubtless, at the end of all things, that the beneficent purposes of God have not been hindered one whit, but promoted and fostered by all that has been done to frustrate them. God can turn even the things that men intend for harm for good. And finally, Paul wants Christ's priority preeminence in his own life. Verse 20. I eagerly expect And hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Christians, my friends, ought to live well and Christians, my friends, ought to die well. That's what Paul is saying. He's not saying I'm looking forward to getting to heaven as a sort of personal view. He wants his death to declare the glory of God. He wants to die in a way that glorifies Christ. As long as that happens, he doesn't mind whether he lives or whether he dies. He's facing the real possibility of death. And he will be content if by his death he might glorify Christ, or by his life he might glorify Christ. He looks for help from both his friends in Philippi and the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now it could be that he's hoping that they will pray for his freedom, but I don't think perhaps it's quite that in light of what he will say in a little while. Do you remember Jesus' words towards the end of his ministry? This is how Mark put it. Whenever you, Jesus speaking, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever you are given at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus warned his disciples. That's precisely the scenario in which Paul is. That he's been brought before others for trial. So perhaps he's hoping that they will be praying That the Holy Spirit of God will give Paul exactly the right words to say so that whether he gets acquitted it will be to the glory of God or whether he dies it will be to the glory of God. Paul is consumed with this desire that it should all be to the glory of Christ. That he should be preeminent in everything. He is a firstborn over all creation. In all him, all things hold together. So my friends, as we go into this week and face difficult things from time to time, I'm really hoping that no one's going to get chucked in prison. But it could happen, you never know. We know of one godly man, a godly, upstanding man of integrity and honor who was thrown into prison for three months in his later years, for something he had not done. And he told me what the court case, every time he realized why Jesus said nothing at his court trial, because he said truth was twisted, every time he explained why, he put the right explanation on whatever he was accused of, it was twisted. And he spent three months in prison. And he said later, he said, they were very productive well, in prison, Charles. I was able to teach young lads English, read to them, and do all sorts of things. that sort of guy. But it came completely out of the blue to someone who had not done anything except be a man of integrity and honour. So it's not impossible, but I'm hoping it's not going to happen. I'm not predicting it. But whatever our problems and trials, remember this. Jesus said it would happen because we are part of the kingdom of God. And there's a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. He is with us. God is with us. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So instead of us beginning to think, I must be in the wrong place, I must have done something wrong, not necessarily. Call on the Lord for help. Ask for his help. That in the way you handle this issue, Christ will be glorified. He will have the preeminence. Whether he rescues you from it or sees you through it, in one way or another, that Christ may be glorified. Because that's what really touches the lives of other people. (coughs) Paul says this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, that will mean fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet what shall I choose, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. There's two ways you can look at the future, and this is not to bring a death wish in. These two things are different. There's a difference between willing to go to be with the Lord, but eager to stay here. That's one way we can look at it. Or, we're eager to be with the Lord, but willing to stay here. And biblically it's a second. That should be our attitude. That we are eager to be with the Lord, who has such things in store for us, to see the one we have loved all our lives, all our Christian lives, the one we've served, the one who is our all in all. We're eager to be with him, but we're willing to stand as long as he has work for us to do. It's a good attitude, isn't it? Let me pray. Father, we don't want to discourage ourselves by imagining the problems that could arise in coming days. We are those who live in the world and we recognize that problems are part of life. But that's what you said, we would have trouble. But you also promised that you would be with us. And I want to ask, Lord, that at this moment in time you might fill each of us so full of your spirit and so full of your word and truth that we will be able to stand on this promise that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So when we face things, we will not be doing so on our own, but with you. When we find ourselves at a loss for words, give us the words to say that will glorify Christ. Whenever we don't know what to do, Father, help us to know what will glorify Christ in our lives, in whatever's coming this week. For we want to bear testimony that Jesus Christ is the world's rightful King. And we are yours. So will you, Father, bless us and make us a blessing this week. In Jesus' name, amen.